This is Books and Nachos, a podcast for those of us who find excitement in the pages of a good book. Fiction and nonfiction, graphic novels and more, we're here to help you find something great to read. Nobody was really surprised when it happened. Not really. Not at the subconscious level where savage things grow. On the surface, all the girls in the shower room were shocked, thrilled, ashamed, or simply glad that the white bitch had taken it in the mouth again. Some of them might have also claimed surprise, but of course their claim was untrue. Carrie had been going to school with some of them since the first grade, and this had been building since that time, building slowly and immutably, in accordance with all the laws that govern human nature, building with all the steadiness of a chain reaction approaching critical mass. What none of them knew, of course, was that Carrie White was telekinetic. Hello, Books and Nachos listeners. I'm Arnie, host of Books and Nachos, and today I will be reviewing Stephen King's first published novel, Carrie, in what promises to be Books and Nachos' longest series ever. Over at NowPlayingPodcast.com, another podcast I host, we're about to begin a Stephen King movie retrospective series. Over the next few years, and yeah, I said years, we will be watching and reviewing all the movies based off Stephen King's works. We're going in order of publication of King's original stories, not in the order that the movies were produced. And that means we're starting with the first Stephen King book, which also happens to be the first Stephen King movie adaptation ever, Carrie. With the Carrie movie remake coming out soon, it's the perfect time to review all four Carrie films and kick off Now Playing's longest, deepest series yet. Before the end of 2013, we're also going to get to the Salem Slot films and The Shining, and we're working to do all of the Night Shift short story adaptations in 2014, but there are a lot of those. On those podcasts at Now Playing, I'm providing the perspective of a Stephen King fan. I've read his works since my preteen years and read some, though not all, of his works as they've been released over the past 25 years. In college, as a writing and English lit student, I wrote several papers analyzing King's body of work, both in print and in film. I even reviewed Under the Dome, the original novel, not the new TV series, on Books and Nachos' sixth episode. To give detailed analysis of the films, I'm going back and reading all of the King novels and short stories as we watch the movies. And in between, I'll be rounding out my King reading here on Books and Nachos, reading and reviewing all the stories King has published, whether or not they were adapted to film. Now, I want to emphasize, this series is not a bonus feature for Now Playing, and I want to make that clear up front. What we're doing here is aligned with Now Playing, but not a part of it. What you will find on Books and Nachos is a spoiler-free as possible critique and analysis of all King's work and publication. My point here isn't to explain how the book differs from the film. I'll be doing that as part of the Now Playing reviews. Instead, I'm going to be analyzing the themes of King's fiction and nonfiction. I'm going to be examining his writing style, reviewing the evolution of his storytelling, and discussing the spark of genius that made King one of the best-selling American authors of all time. Even if you have read and loved all of King's works, I hope you'll find some background information you didn't know before to help enrich your enjoyment of King's bibliography. It's a journey of discovery that I hope you'll join me on. More, I'm not going to be as beholden to release date as we are at Now Playing. I'm going to be reviewing the King books as Now Playing reviews the corresponding films, and that will primarily follow King's publication order. 
but I'm also going to be pulling in sequels and additional material as it becomes relevant. For example, King's most recent work as of this recording is Doctor Sleep, which is a sequel to his seminal early book, The Shining. Rather than wait until a movie is released based upon Doctor Sleep, or until I've reviewed every other King book and story ever published, I'll be reading and reviewing Doctor Sleep immediately after The Shining, while that original book is still fresh in my mind. And I'm going to be reviewing these books as if you haven't read them, giving background details as we go, but I will provide substantial warning before spoiling any major plot points. But that said, I do hope you'll consider reading along with me. Come to the Books and Nachos forums, the link is at booksandnachos.com, and share your thoughts, both of King's work and my reviews of them. You can also email me your comments at arnie at booksandnachos.com. But now let's turn to Carrie, which is King's first published novel. He'd written several other manuscripts and had at least three completed novels rejected for publication, and two of which, Rage and Blaze, would later be rewritten and find publication. King wrote Carrie on a dare. He was challenged by someone who thought he could only write macho books for men, and this antagonist thought King couldn't write about women, so he took the challenge and started a short story about a girl getting her first period. Many people thought King was inspired by The Exorcist, another story about a pubescent girl who moves things with her minds and kills people, but the truth is, Carrie was written before The Exorcist was in theaters and King wasn't aware of the original book. No, King was actually inspired for this story when working as a janitor in college. King saw a vending machine in the women's locker room and couldn't figure out what it was for. His co-worker coarsely told him they were, quote, pussy plugs, and King wondered how a woman would react having her first period in a locker room in front of her friends. Add to that a Life magazine article King read about a teen who could move things with her mind, and a novel was born. He wrote the opening scene depicting a teenage girl having her first period while showering in a high school locker room, and he intended it to be a short story for a men's magazine where he was regularly published. But with those early pages completed, King felt the story was going nowhere and he literally threw it in the trash. It was King's wife Tabitha who pulled it out and told him to finish the story, and that single act changed King's life. He completed this whole book in just two weeks and wrote the story of Carrie White. The book takes place in 1979, five years in the future as of the book's publication. Carrie is a picked-on high school outcast. Her home life is unhappy, her father died before she was born, and her mother, Margaret, is a fanatical religious fundamentalist who rules with an iron fist, locking Carrie in a closet and sometimes physically beating the girl. As a result of her home life, Carrie never adjusted well in school from her earliest years. Her modest clothing, her strange behaviors all made her a subject of ridicule by her peers, and anyone who tried to intervene to help Carrie adjust would be rebuked by Margaret's domineering personality. But with the onset of puberty, with the coming of her first menstruation, Carrie also develops powerful psychic abilities. She can project her thoughts onto others, start fires, and her most prevalent power is her ability to move things with her mind. The powers didn't come with puberty. Even as a young child, Carrie could make things happen in times of extreme stress. Margaret twice tried to murder her daughter, thinking Carrie to be devil's spawn, and Carrie's powers would manifest, saving the girl's life, once by causing a rain of large stones to descend upon Margaret's house. But now a teen, Carrie has her first period late in life, in the girl's shower, and those who'd picked on her for so long revel in the opportunity to pelt her with sanitary napkins and tampons, chant plug it up, 
and give Carrie her ultimate humiliation, which also finally unleashes to the girl her long dormant power. With practice, she learns to harness and control this power, and with her newfound abilities comes a confidence that those with power have. She's long fantasized about the deaths of those who tormented her in school, and now Carrie has the power to make it happen. But Carrie isn't the only one changing. Approaching graduation, the seeming onset of adulthood, Carrie's classmate Sue Snell is contemplating the woman she's going to become. Sue's ashamed at how she reacted when Carrie had her period in the shower, and Sue joined in with the other girls throwing the tampons at the fat outcast. Sue wants to atone for her behavior, so she asks her boyfriend Tommy Ross to take Carrie to prom and give the lonely girl one great night. Tommy is kind-hearted and agrees, helping Carrie to further come out of her shell. But Chris Hargensen, another student, refuses to let this happen. She skips the detention given to all of the girls involved with the shower incident, and so Chris is barred from attending prom. When she hears Carrie's going to go to prom as Tommy's date, Chris conspires with her sociopathic boyfriend Billy Nolan to make Carrie's big night one she'll never forget, the zenith of Carrie's humiliation. But while Carrie's night is ruined, she exacts vengeance on the town that caused her so much pain, and before the sun would rise, the town of Chamberlain, Maine was destroyed and dozens were dead, including Margaret White and Carrie herself. And if you're shouting at your iPhone, wait a minute, Arnie, you said there'd be no spoilers! Nothing I've stated so far is a spoiler, for King's story is told as a flashback, interspersed with articles and testimony taken after the fact. King establishes up front that Carrie is a mass murderer who's going to destroy her entire town, and the fun is in watching how it unfolds. Plus, I do wonder how many people still don't know the story of Carrie as we approach the 40th anniversary of its publication. Though, yeah, I do think it's more known for the movie than the novel. I know I saw Brian De Palma's 1976 Carrie movie days after I first read King's book, and I think even if you haven't seen De Palma's film, you know its iconography. You know the image of blood-soaked Carrie in her dress on stage, Sissy Spacek with her stringy red hair, Piper Lorius Carrie's mom chanting, They're all gonna laugh at you! And while that line wasn't found in King's novel, De Palma's film of Carrie is a very faithful adaptation, from the opening in a girl's locker room to the explosive prom night end. So for a reader who doesn't pay full attention, the differences between the book and the film could be overlooked. Now, as I said before, I want to review this novel on its own, not as a comparison to the films. I'll leave that for now playing to do. But I do feel it's necessary to call out some of the elements of Carrie established by De Palma and note it is not entirely King's vision for Carrie. The image for Carrie in De Palma's film and the 2002 and 2013 remakes is that of a gangly, thin, gawky girl but I think that portrayal's a little too easy. All three actresses are girls who could get a day pass to a spa for a makeover and look normal or perhaps even hot. Carrie is shunned by her classmates for her lack of fashion sense and her social awkwardness, sure, but there's a spark there in these movies that viewers can see. Carrie's a pitiable, relatable character, and the viewer connects with this outcast and maybe even roots for her. In King's novel, though, Carrie is truly an unlikable person. King goes out of his way in the first chapter to describe how Carrie's fat, has pimples down her neck and back, she smells bad, she has sweat stains on her blouse, she's hated by her fellow students, and her gym teacher thinks of her as, quote, 
a fat, whiny bag of lard. In grammar school, students said, Carrie White eats shit. And in junior high, they upgraded to roses are red, violets are blue, sugar is sweet, but Carrie White eats shit. Yes, her clothes are out of style and her stockings always run, but she has physical, emotional, and mental problems. She's not picked on because she's poor or because her mother's a religious fanatic. She's picked on because, in every way, she is an outcast. More, she comes across, especially early on, as a dumb girl. Due to a combination of shyness and lack of intellect, she's barely able to speak. For the first chapter, her dialogue is comprised mostly of grunts and noises like, Oh, huh? Like the movie Incarnation, it's easy to feel pity for Carrie, but that's kind of where it ends in the novel, because she's an ugly character inside and out. As a result of her abuse at the hands of the students and mama alike, Carrie has fantasies of homicide. After the locker room incident, Carrie dreams of crushing Chris Harginson's head in with a rock. She dreams of the biblical day her mother preaches about, the day of judgment. And when that day comes and Jesus returns, Carrie wants to be the sword of God, doling out punishment to those who hurt her. And when she discovers her power after her first period, her first use of it is to knock a five-year-old off his bike for calling her old fart face. Yet, despite this, she's the novel's protagonist, one of the few characters in the entire book not wholly contemptible. As her mental ability grows stronger, she grows stronger too and learns to stand up for herself. And in most books, a character with that arc is the hero. But in King's work, I'm left wondering, is Carrie a hero or a villain? I do believe that despite her flaws, we're not meant to despise her. We're meant to sympathize with her plight. Her murderous fantasies are almost understandable given what she has to go through. But can we still stand by her when she does eventually become that sword of God and leave both innocent and guilty dead in the wake of her destruction? In the end, this story is a simple, nihilistic revenge fantasy. It feels very much of the 1970s, where similar stories filled cinemas with movies like I Spit on Your Grave, Straw Dogs, Last House on the Left, and Death Wish. Though, even more than in some of those stories, Carrie starts off wanting to harm her tormentors, and through genetic luck, she has the mental ability to do so. The arc of Carrie bears a remarkable similarity to the character of Charlie Decker in King's novel Rage. As I mentioned before, King wrote at least a draft of Rage before Carrie, and Rage would eventually be published under King's pseudonym Richard Bachman. Carrie used psychic powers while Charlie used a gun, but King's writing focus in these early years certainly surrounded high school students and the contempt they have for one another and revenge fantasies of the picked on. Writers, especially early writers, write what they know, and King has said in interviews that much of the teen angst he wrote about was drawn from his own frustrations and pains as a high school student. These experiences are fresh and raw, as King writes, and I find King to be one of the first writers who could truly explore how evil kids and teens can be to outcast peers. These days, there's the anti-bullying patrol. Bullying is a buzzword for most all hostile behavior in schools. It's sometimes overused to where any form of critique can be seen as bullying. But in the 20th century, and I know during the 80s and before, hostile behavior between teens and children was a phenomenon writ off by parents' as kid stuff that was unimportant. King, however, depicts in his fiction the true depraved depths students will delve to inflict pain on their peers. 
In later works, King would take teen bullying to a homicidal level. But in these early works, homicide is a retaliation to bullying, not an act of bullying. But keep in mind, Carrie was published in 1974. King was writing about the torment amongst teens 25 years before it would become a public phenomenon. Carrie tells a story of retaliation against bullies that could be seen as a supernatural rendition of the Columbine school shootings. And I don't mean for that comparison to be too direct or in bad taste, but I think it's important to stress that King saw in high school students, both as a student and then as a high school teacher, the true amount of pain dished upon the bullied, and he used that in his fiction. I think that King's understanding of how painful teen torment can be is why his works appeal so much to teen readers. I know that when I was in junior high and high school classes, King books were omnipresent, being read not as assigned reading, but for fun. Many teachers actually forbade using King for papers and such in high school because kids were reading Stephen King anyway. And I think part of that is because King is the first popular writer that really taps the vein of pure bullying. And Carrie's story is a story of pain, both receiving and then, when she gets power, delivering pain. She's not exactly heroic, though perhaps picked-on students can wish they had the power of Carrie to enact their own revenge, the way Carrie herself dreamt of being the sword of God. I think the fact that King was a teacher, not long out of college himself when he wrote this, is significant. That torment of his own youth, plus, as a teacher, the witnessing of the torment of his students, gives this book a raw quality. The book is about supernatural powers, but it's grounded because the relationships between the characters, while often venomous, feel so real. Some of that reality can be attributed to Tabitha King. One of the reasons King threw away his first writing of Carrie was a fear of being unable to write realistic female characters. Tabitha helped King with that, providing a woman's insight into female relationships. You combine that female perspective with King's imagination, basing the character of Carrie on two students King knew in his youth, one of whom eventually took her own life, and the result is a character who comes to life on the page. But, like real life, she's complex, and again, I wonder, is she a hero? Or was her mother right to try and kill her to stop a power the world was unready for? In looking for a character that's pure of heart, we do have Sue Snell, but even Sue's not left off the hook. The book opens with Sue joining in her classmates, pelting Carrie with tampons and maxi pads, and though she feels remorse and tries to make amends, she's doing so for selfish reasons. She sees her parents' life, the life that's in store for her, a middle-upper-class woman in a 1974 writing that met domestic duties and being a proud member of the PTA while popping Mother's Little Helper to not go insane. More, while Sue feels some guilt for what she did, it's her boyfriend Tommy that prods her to do something about it. With his feedback, Sue needs to atone not for Carrie but for herself, and it's her selfish desire for atonement that is the catalyst for the destruction of the town. Carrie is the sword of God, but Sue is the unwitting architect. That King allows Sue to survive the book suggests to me she's the most innocent of the bunch, but she is left with her own emotional and mental scars that make her earlier nightmares of domestic life in the PTA seem like a dream. Sue's boyfriend Tommy may also be a pure character. Playing super-ego to girlfriend Sue, Tommy may in fact be the only truly good character in the book. But in King's works, being good of heart isn't a guarantee of survival, and Tommy does not get off as easily as Sue. Still, 
It's Tommy who will not absolve Sue of her guilt, and thus he who gets to take Carrie to the prom. Unfortunately, Tommy is the least explored of the main cast. We mostly see Tommy through the eyes of Sue and Carrie, and as such, I never get a beat on him. He comes across as a bland good guy, and I would have liked more depth in the character. But the rest of the characters in Carrie range from contemptibly blasé to downright evil. The initial villain of the story, if it's not Carrie herself, is Chris Hargensen, the leader of the clique that has tormented Carrie for so many years. Her torments go beyond name-calling. She once put a lit firecracker in the shoe of a different student with a hair lip, causing the girl to lose several toes. Chris is a spoiled rich bitch used to getting her own way. If she can't push for herself, she calls in her father, a lawyer, to fight her battles for her. It's Chris's indignation about being shut out of prom that's the spark that ignites Carrie's rage and destruction. But truthfully, Chris is a bit flat of a character, too much a stereotype for my tastes. The only unique thing about her is how her own nasty persona ignites her sexual desires. She's frigid unless she's performing cruel acts. It's an interesting detail, but I'm not sure what it tells me about Chris's character. Her boyfriend Billy Nolan is also a stereotype. The bad boy from the other side of the tracks who Chris is dating. He's 19, two years older than the other characters, and he does seem to be your typical thug. His lust for Chris makes him her muscle. He starts helping with the plot against Carrie just to make Chris happy. But as the book progresses, Billy's character changes, and he's revealed to be a true sociopath who uses his car to run over dogs just to alleviate his own boredom. As the plot progresses and he acts more evil, Chris becomes more enamored with him, and this causes a power shift. Billy had been turned on by Chris being hard to get. Once Chris is wet and ready, Billy finds that a turnoff. I liked this exploration, and I liked that he was truly a bad guy in the middle of teenage hijinks, and I did also enjoy that he came to hate Chris and revel in the power he held over her as the spell she had on him faded. But Billy's this type of character we're going to see again and again in King's fiction, especially in his longer works. A self-involved person whose bad acts are a catalyst for terror beyond imagination. I think Junior Rennie kind of plays this role in King's recent book Under the Dome. Trash Can Man is somewhat similar in The Stand, or even Harold Lawner in The Stand. The shading is off, but the act of an outsider to the group whose nefarious acts trigger major events is there. Yet I can't help but wish that Billy had more motivation than just evil for evil's sake. Chris's motivation for wanting to hurt Carrie is well established, and even believable that she goes to the extremes that she does. But Billy is Chris's sort of vengeance. He performs the acts at her will, at least to start. And I can't help but think it would be more dramatically satisfying if Billy was truly central rather than a random sociopath. But if there's one thing I really dislike about Billy, and there is one thing, it's King's description of the man. King writes that Nolan is, quote, like some strange time traveler from the 1950s with his greased hair, zipper bejeweled black leather jacket, and manifold bubbling Chevrolet road machine. In short, Billy is a greaser, and the leader of a gang of thugs. In the real 1979, the image of greasers was either Fonzie from Happy Days or John Travolta singing You're the One That I Want on a high school carnival ride. Coincidentally, Travolta would play Billy in the first Carrie film. Even in 1974 when Carrie was published, greasers were out of date. Now, King does a solid thing by calling Nolan a time traveler, 
as he certainly doesn't fit in a late 1970s environment. But Billy is the first in a long line of greaser baddies in King Works. I can't help but think that some of King's own personal schoolyard torment came at the hands of greasers, for King has provided us 40 years of fiction, and it seems the bad guys repeatedly want to dress like Arthur Fonzarelli. We'll get to those stories, but needful things, sometimes they come back. Ace Merrill in The Body, Henry Bowers in It, the list goes on and on and will eventually cover them all. But unless a book such as It are taking place in the 50s, this type of villain just doesn't work for me. But Billy isn't the only character who's echoed in future King works. Even more than the greaser, King loves to include characters of oppressive parents, and in Carrie, we get the first with Margaret White. Actually, White is two King archetypes in one, the evil parent and the religious fanatic, though in Margaret, the two are inseparably intertwined aspects of her character. Her religious fanaticism went so far as to believe God demanded complete celibacy from his followers, something that actually makes no sense, as pure celibacy would lead to the extinction of the human race. More, the Bible does say, be fruitful and multiply, and there's really only one way to do that. But Margaret believes if children are to be born, they should all be immaculately conceived like Jesus. It's only through her husband, who twice forces himself upon her, that Margaret becomes pregnant. But Margaret sees Carrie as a child born of evil, and a reminder of the lustful act in which Margaret engaged. When Carrie was an infant, and again when she was a three-year-old, Margaret tried to kill her daughter to be rid of the evil. Margaret knew her own maternal grandmother had psychic abilities and wanted to stop the devil's powers. But as she couldn't complete the act, she instead tried to beat religion into Carrie through physical and mental abuse. In the novel Christine, King would write, quote, I think that part of being a parent is trying to kill your kids, unquote. And Margaret fits that to a T. Bad parents of varying degrees are featured in Christine, It, The Body, and so many other King works. Not all these parental examples attempt to stab their children with a butcher's knife, but it's a theme that will be repeated. Religious fanatics are also a repeated baddie in King works. Margaret is the first, but we'll be revisiting this topic again in The Mist, Children of the Corn, and others. Also, Carrie has a vision of her mama fighting the black man, a personification of the devil. And I've read some speculation that this may or may not be the first literary incarnation of the walkin' dude Randall Flagg from King's Dark Tower and Stan novels. Or it may just be a similar concept that King would flesh out later to better effect. Another type King would revisit repeatedly is a character that works as a teacher. King worked as a teacher before he retired to be a full-time author, and so many of his works feature teachers and writers. They say writers write what they know, and King keeps going to these two professions. The primary teacher in Carrie is Miss Desjardins, a first-year gym teacher who intervenes when the girls are tormenting Carrie. Desjardins' arc mirrors that of Sue in some ways. When Carrie was bleeding on the shower floor, Desjardins was repulsed and as disgusted as Carrie's classmates were. But more mature than the other girls, Desjardins' revulsion quickly turns to pity, and the gym teacher takes it upon herself to avenge Carrie. She tries to bar all Carrie's tormentors from attending prom, and when the school administration refuses, Desjardins slaps Chris around and administers a hard detention to all the girls. Now, we're never really given insight into this teacher's thoughts other than, like Sue, 
She felt bad for her own initial reaction to Carrie and tried to make amends. But unlike Sue, when Carrie's mind-reading powers progress, she can see that Desjardins' atonement is surface level. She, like Billy and Tommy, is a character that really would have benefited from more exploration. But with a teacher, a religious fanatic, a greaser, evil parents, these epitomize what I perhaps found most interesting when I reread Carrie for this review. How much of King's later works are in Carrie? I mentioned the biggest ones, but there are so many more concepts in this first novel that King would later explore. I feel like King had so many ideas in his head that he could hardly contain them, and so they all made it onto the pages of Carrie. It shows a lack of discipline that they're all included, but yet it's also exciting and helps to enrich this novel. It may be because he included so much that Carrie was accepted for publication, and yet it's something that I don't think King would do again. I mean, I think about King's work, especially his early work, and it always seems pretty focused. Christine is about an evil car. Firestarter is about a girl who is pyrokinetic. Salem's Lot is about a vampire. Pet Cemetery is about evil undead. There's usually the one supernatural element in an ordinary world that King depicts. But with Carrie, it's all here. King's first published novel contains tropes he would revisit again and again. In the movie, Carrie is a telekinetic, but that's all. Yet in this book, Carrie is also telepathic, a trait King would explore much further in The Shining, Firestarter, and other fiction. Carrie's grandmother also had these gifts, including pyrokinesis, another topic for Firestarter. It's also said that when Carrie is using her powers, it puts a strain on her heart and lowers her body temperature unnaturally. It's literally killing her to kill others. And we'll see similar physical strain from supernatural forces in future King works. Billy Nolan is mentioned as being obsessed with his car. He can only have sex in the back seat of his car because it makes him feel powerful. He uses his car to kill, and at one point he's described as feeling his car turn traitor and come alive. This is all deep shades of Christine. And Carrie and Billy both have no fathers, raised by single mothers, another repeated theme in King's work, likely inspired by King's father going out for a pack of cigarettes and never coming home. A child or teen picked on by spiteful, virtually evil peers will be seen again in Christine, It, and many more. A child or teen with supernatural powers is found in The Shining, Firestarter, and others. If you want super-powered females, King has them. It starts here in Carrie, but Firestarter, The Stand, and more. These are themes and ideas that we are going to be seeing again and again as we read through King's novels. Finally, Carrie is set in the fictional main town of Chamberlain, which may not have the name recognition of Castle Rock, but it is a neighboring town. King was born, raised, and still has a large home in Maine, and that so many of his works are set in Maine is certainly one of King's trademarks. All of these elements, all very King in my mind, are in Carrie. I find it ironic that King fans will see so much here in Carrie if they know King's other works, but if you're reading King's works, then you may well have started with Carrie and can only see them in retrospect. One thing Carrie does that King hasn't returned to is the epistolary storytelling style. Throughout the novel, we get documents, newspaper clippings, books, and even testimony from investigative inquiries in the aftermath of the destruction, or the White Incident, as it's called. Here, King is drawing a direct parallel between Carrie's hometown destruction and the assassination of JFK. King even writes in the book, quote, The two most stunning events of the 20th century have been the assassination of John F. Kennedy in 1963 
and the destruction that came to Chamberlain, Maine in May of 1979. He points out, quote, Both events were driven home to the citizenry by mass media, and both events have almost shouted the frightening fact that, while something had ended, something else had irrevocably set in motion for good or ill. King drives this home by having many of the excerpts and articles we read compiled by interviews and investigations by the White Commission, a pastiche of the Warren Commission. Experts in psychology and psychic powers opine about the sequence of events as the truths died with the residents of Chamberlain. These articles are to show that Pandora's box was opened when the world was forced to admit psychic abilities exist, and it's really that question that lingers when the book ends. Now, according to George Beam's book, The Stephen King Companion, this storytelling style was a late addition by King for the purpose of expanding Carrie's word count to novel length. But what a great addition it was! Use of these elements create a ticking clock in the novel for the reader knows of the destruction to come, and we turn each page hungrily to see it happen. More, when Carrie's rage is unleashed, it comes quickly and furiously. But through these articles, we learn that Carrie will die, that her mother will die, that Tommy Ross is dead, and so many more. That we learn these facts early lets us know we're witnessing the final moments of these characters' lives, and that adds import to their every action. More, King uses these articles to provide background information that enhances the main narrative. We learn some of Margaret's background, how her religion forbade sex even within marriage, and yet Margaret had a daughter and, before her marriage, a miscarriage. In addition to adding suspense and fleshing out characters, these details and the methods in which they are presented makes King's fiction feel more real. More, King set the novel in 1979, and remember, this book was published in 1974 and written before that. By setting the story five years in the future and delivering it in this documentary fashion, it grounds this fantastical story. That this was a late edition made just to pad the book's length is telling that King was still honing his craft. For while King's prose is conversational and engaging, it's these articles that elevate the novel above your common pulp. And I don't say that to ding King's writing. It's actually shocking how strong King's voice is in this first novel. Carrie is vividly descriptive. King seems to instinctively provide just the right amount of detail to every scene to give the book a sense of place without bogging down the story with overwritten descriptions. From this first book, King uses pop culture as a shorthand for the reader. Using popular music and brand names makes the audience comfortable. When King tells us that Billy drinks Rheingold beer, but Chris's fraternity dates drank Budweiser, our preconceived notions of these brands instantly tells us volumes about these people. King also isn't afraid to break convention. The prose sections of the novel are told from very character-focused third-person perspectives. We get inside the heads of all the main characters, including Carrie, Margaret, Sue, Tommy, Billy, and Chris. But like real people, rather than paper characters, sometimes their thoughts are scattered. They become preoccupied or think things they don't want to, especially Carrie with her conflicted emotions, torn between mama and society. To show this, King uses fragmented sentences and parenthetical notations, and the reader instantly knows what's being conveyed. It's not normal to have a sentence fragment contained in parentheses as an entire paragraph, but by doing so, King shapes your reading of these words. You get emotion, context, and insight from small groups of words, creating an involving yet economic storytelling style. Later in the book, 
When Carrie starts to develop her psychic powers, this same notation is used to represent thoughts not originating from the point of view character. It's a marvelous and exciting evolution of this writing device that fits the book so well. But lest my praise be too high, this is a first novel and each of these techniques I mentioned also have drawbacks. I loved the use of retrospective storytelling, though I must say all the articles feel written in the same voice, and that voice is King's. He seemingly did not stretch himself to take on one style of writing to be a reporter from the Westover Weekly Enterprise newspaper, and another style for the Associated Press ticker. Also, the news articles and excerpts sprinkled throughout the book often contrast factually with the prose story. For example, the articles suggest that Sue and Tommy conspired with Chris and Billy to humiliate Carrie at the prom, but the prose tells a different tale, that Sue and Tommy were trying to do the right thing. Because the excerpts are used to provide so much factual information, when it's put at odds with the prose, which is again written in that strong third-person perspective, it makes me wonder if we have a subjective or omniscient narrator. Put more simply, I don't know what is truth and what is bullshit. In the end, I come down that the prose is the facts of the story as it happens, the excerpts are the subjective writings after the fact, but it created some confusion on my part. Additionally, the articles are great at providing tension during these early parts of the novel. Without experts telling us of upcoming depth and destruction, readers could be bored by the hijinks of a late-blooming high school outcast. But when the story reaches its climactic moment at prom, when the shit hits the fan, is when King pummels the reader with the largest grouping of articles. I really feared the entire book's climax would be told in retrospect, documented after the fact. It certainly seems that way for so many pages. The book thus far has focused most on Carrie's point of view, so when we get article after article telling of the prom disaster, I was feeling robbed. I wanted to know what Carrie was thinking, and King makes me read what happens from the point of view of the outsider before telling me the same story from Carrie's point of view. I do love prolonging the magic, making the suspense linger before giving a reader the biggest reveal. It makes that moment sweeter if the reader is hungry for it. But King overindulges. He chooses the wrong moment to add hundreds of words to the book's length. It robs the climax of emotional weight, and by the time we're seeing things from Carrie's perspective, it's all a bit redundant. This retrospective storytelling is something King would return to again and again, such as in It, where a story in the present day is told in parallel to a story from years past. But the epistolary storytelling, King wouldn't return to this style for a full-length book until 2000 for his still-unfinished novel, The Plant. It's also a bit jarring that Carrie White, despite being the titular character, is not our only point-of-view character. As I said, the book has a strong third-person point of view, but that means we jump into the minds of character after character. The specific folks I've discussed so far are the primary point-of-view characters, but even minor characters like the assistant principal of the school and even one of Billy's toadies all get their moments. This creates a bit of a schizophrenic feeling in the reader, exacerbated by King's lack of chapters. The book isn't broken into traditional chapters, but instead into three parts, and the third part is little more than an epilogue. Without these traditional breakpoints in the prose to establish shifts of point of view, the novel feels scattered. To tell the story King has, we must leave Carrie's point of view. We have to know why Sue has Tommy ask Carrie to prom. 
We have to know Chris's plan for revenge to build suspense, but it takes away from the novel. I like that it's told through prose rather than articles, and clearly King could have done it all through articles and subjective after-the-fact recounts from survivors. I do prefer to get into the characters' heads and experience their private moments, such as Chris's first orgasm with Billy, something Chris would be unlikely to confide in anyone, but I had to hold on with both hands and follow King's shifts in perspective. More, the only truly well-written character is Carrie White herself. In reading the book, Carrie feels real. Her reactions are believable. Her mother is a close second. Margaret is so one-note with her religious fervor, but yet it works as King has established her. And through Carrie's own thoughts, we learn about Margaret's habits, her work at the local laundromat, and more. But every other character in Carrie feels, well, like a fictional character. The minor characters get the shortest shrift. King tries to imbibe these people with personal quirks, such as you in high school assistant principal Mr. Morton, who's preoccupied with a blister under his fingernail while doling out punishment for Carrie's locker room abuse. But I never see any of these people as more than functional. They're not written in a way that I think they have lives of their own. They live only when on the page and then blink out of existence with no homes, families, or lives. Miss Desjardins is the worst victim of this. She's an adult, a newly hired school teacher, and she seems to have no concerns beyond that of a student she hates. One extended sequence between two such characters is when Chris's father, John Harginson, goes to see Henry Grail, this high school principal. These two have a tete-a-tete when Harginson threatens to sue the school district if Chris is barred from prom, and Gail gives as good as he gets in upholding the girl's suspension. It's a five-page sequence focusing on one character, John Harginson, we never see again, and the other character, the principal, who doesn't matter to the story. It's a fun read. I loved the legal one-upsmanship the men show, but it adds no value to the story, especially when it's done between two nothing characters. I especially wish King made Tommy and Sue Snell feel more human. Both of them are altruistic, and King tries to give us insights into Sue's viewing the upcoming graduation as not only the end of school, but also the end of her youth. Yet for all the ink King spills, both characters come off as bland and two-dimensional. I never truly understand their altruism beyond their good, smart people. And Chris, Billy, and Billy's gang are equally two-dimensional bad people. Finally, the book ends on a cliffhanger, one that hasn't been repeated in any of the adaptations thus far. The White Commission was investigating Carrie's mental powers, primarily to determine how the government can react if future superhuman people arise. The cliffhanger suggests future telekinetics could cause even greater destruction, and I think it undermines Carrie's character arc to imply that. Clearly, Carrie's destruction was caused not because she was superpowered, but because she was an outcast. Another girl with similar powers wouldn't necessarily walk that same path. Hell, they could end up more like Scott Bayo and Zapped. We just don't know. We even are told Carrie's grandmother had psychic powers, and yet there is no wanton destruction there. I feel the White Commission doesn't make its case that all telekinetics are evil, and King, the author, fails trying to make the same case. It's a strange, unnecessary ending. Now, these criticisms aren't meant to damn King's first novel, but it is clearly the work of an author still learning how to establish voice and create fleshed-out characters, and I believe these issues are why King himself is no fan of Carrie.
This book is King's first published novel, his first big success. Carrie the book opened doors for King to write future novels, but it was Carrie the movie that made King a bestseller, a millionaire, and a household name. Carrie sold a few thousand copies as an original hardcover novel. Once the movie was out, the paperback sold a million copies. Yet for all it did for King's career, King himself is highly critical of Carrie. His comments on it range from wishing it was never published to this more reasoned statement he said in 1989. It was a young book by a young writer. In retrospect, it reminds me of a cookie baked by a first grader. Tasty enough, but kind of lumpy and burned on the bottom. I actually think King's first grader analogy is overly harsh, but there's no doubt King would more finely hone the craft of writing after Carrie. Critics in 1974 gave the book mixed to negative reviews, but perhaps King's style was too drastic a shift for the reviewers of the time. Coming from someone steeped in King's words looking back at this first novel, I think Carrie itself is an engaging, fun, and fast read. It comes in under 200 pages, making it one of King's shortest novels. If you're a King fan and you've not read Carrie, you owe it to yourself to spend a couple hours visiting Chamberlain, Maine and the telekinetic girl that changed King's life. If you don't like King, but enjoy Carrie the movie or are interested in the upcoming new adaptation, yes! Read this original novel. When asked about De Palma's Carrie, King famously said, quote, It's a pretty good movie, but the book is better. And the novel is quite the legacy. The upcoming film will be the fourth time Carrie is adapted for the screen, counting the TV movie that failed to spawn a series and the ill-conceived film The Rage, Carrie 2. There is even a Broadway musical based on Carrie in the late 80s. But the biggest legacy of Carrie is King's own career. Before Carrie hit screens in 1976, King's sophomore novel, The Vampire Tale Salem's Lot, was published. We're going to be discussing that book in a few weeks here on Books and Nachos. In the meantime, I invite you to join Stuart, Jacob, and me over at NowPlayingPodcast.com, where we're watching and reviewing all four of the Carrie film adaptations as the start of our massive Stephen King movie retrospective series. I promise you, it'll be one hell of a ride. So thank you for listening to this episode of Books and Nachos. I'd love to hear your thoughts on Carrie, the book, and on this podcast. Come to Books and Nachos forums, a link is at booksandnachos.com, and share your thoughts. And you can also email me at arnie at booksandnachos.com. So until next time, please remember to support your local bookstore. Thank you for listening to Books and Nachos. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review on iTunes, and you can catch back episodes at our website, booksandnachos.com. The music for Books and Nachos is The Right Prescription by Chai Weapon, which can be downloaded at podsafeaudio.com. Books and Nachos is a Venganza Media production, copyright 2013, all rights reserved. We mostly, mostly. I can only think that some of King's own personal schoolyard. I can't help but think that some of King's own school. Ah!